Good morning, everyone. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, I don't know if you thought about this before, but um, having a too small a view of something leads to loss. Relationally, financially, sometimes something even bigger. I, uh, I remember being in early high school, and I remember having a big argument with my dad. I asked him to drive me to a friend's place, and he said no. I couldn't believe it. I thought, it's not that hard. I tried to explain to him in great detail, all you have to do is get your right foot and move it about two centimetres forward and back, and you'll get me there. What's so hard about this? Like, you don't want me to go. He explained that I had a slightly too small a view of what it would cost him to drive me to my friend's place on zero notice. There would be 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back, twice because he had to pick me up as well. It was actually a big thing. It's trivial, but you get the point. Having a too small a view of something led to some relational loss. Less trivial is the story of Ronald Wayne. This is a guy who started a company with two of his friends, and uh, he had a 10% stake in the company. After a little while, he decided to sell his 10% stake for $800. Today, his 10% would have been worth $8.7 million because he started it with the guys who started Apple. He had a slightly too small a view of the company, and it was a huge loss for him. The passage we're looking at this morning wants to show us that we have too small a view of four things. It'll show us that our view of Jesus is too low, our view of ourselves isn't low enough, our understanding of discipleship is too comfortable, and our grasp on the goodness of the gospel is never big enough. That's what we're going to see. A too small small view of those things is going to mean a few things. One, it'll mean that we water down the good news of Jesus that he came to bring. It'll mean that we can end up living kind of the comfortable life of discipleship that pleases us instead of the radical discipleship that pleases God. And if you're new to the things of the Bible, it'll mean that you don't see who you really are and that you'll never see what you really need. To say it positively, this passage, God this morning wants to open our eyes to a fuller picture of Jesus, to the deeper reality of who we are, to see the radical call of discipleship on our lives, and he wants to help us marvel more and more at the beauty of the gospel. That's great that you're here this morning. Now, the way the, this passage is going to do that is kind of like being an extended movie trailer. You know when there's like a huge movie coming out and they kind of initially release like a 20 or 30 second trailer? kind of gives you the main themes, gets you hyped for the movie, but there's not really any details about what happens in the movie. Then a couple months later you get the two minute version. You kind of get more details in the same theme. It's kind of meant to get you more hyped as you see more and more of what unfolds in the movie. This passage is a bit like that. Last week, we saw the short trailer, the initial theme of who Jesus was and what he came to do, that he's one with authority who came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. But we didn't really see how he's going to pull that off. This section follows that same theme, who is Jesus, what did he come to do, what did he come to do, but it's a little bit like the extended movie trailer, and we see more on how he will proclaim and bring about that kingdom. And the key, like any good movie trailer, is not to get bored when the same themes come up, but to get more excited and blown away as more details come out and we see more of what Jesus is doing in this world. So God wants to explode our view of Jesus this morning 
ourselves, discipleship and the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? Let's get stuck into point one. Jesus is the all-powerful Lord and we are far from it. Chapter 5 starts with two characters. First you get Simon Peter, who's kind of known a bit more here as Simon and later he's known more as Peter. Uh, Peter has pulled an all-nighter fishing with his mates. Not for fun, this is his job. He's a professional fisherman. It's morning now and he's mending his nets after a hard night of work. That's Peter. And then there's Jesus. The crowds are pressing in on him and he wants to teach them, but there's too many. And so he sees Peter, whom he knows from last week, or how long ago was in the story, and he says, Peter, can you take me out on your boat? That way I can sit in the water and kind of use the water like a natural amphitheatre. I don't know if you know this, but if you speak over the water, your voice carries far better than Jesus wants to teach the crowd. And so Peter takes Jesus out on his boat and Jesus teaches the crowd. When he's finished, Peter, when he's finished preaching, Jesus says to Peter, verse 4, have a look at verse 4. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now this is Jesus talking to Peter whose job and life is fishing. Peter's been fishing all night with multiple, multiple boats and hasn't caught anything. He knows that fishing is way better at night when fish can't see the nets and he knows that Jesus isn't a fisherman. Uh, most of us have the, kind of that area in life where you know stuff, right? You're the expert. There's, there's no point anyone else telling you things about that. That's your thing. For Peter, that's fishing. And Jesus says, look, you know, the problem is you just got to put your nets over here. It's kind of like the ultimate mansplaining moment. And so Peter lets him know. Have a look at verse 5. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Peter knows that there are not any fish. Yet he also knows that Jesus is some sort of man of God. He saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. And so he says, okay, at your word, I'll give it a crack. And he throws the nets out. And just before he can say, I told you there was no fish, the nets start to fill. You can kind of imagine the scene, right? Fish everywhere pouring into the nets and they're trying to pull the nets in and it's so heavy the nets are breaking. So they get their mates from the other boat to come on over as well and both boats are so filled with fish they start to sink and they just go, this is crazy. They're laughing and they're celebrating. They probably invited the high five at that moment. It just kind of feels right. This is the coolest and craziest thing that's ever happened to them. And on top of that, they realise we're going to be rich. We caught all these fish and we're going to get to sell them. This is like a bit of a nest egg that we're building up here. This is incredible. And then suddenly, Peter thinks, who is this guy? You catch a massive catch of fish when you found nothing all night. And suddenly for Peter, who Jesus is becomes very clear. Have a look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter is the master fisherman. But in this moment, he realises that Jesus is the master of the fish. In fact, he's the master of the world. In this mighty display of power, Peter calls Jesus a name that so far has only been reserved for God. See, 30 times in Luke so far, the title Lord has been used. 
and each time it's referred to God. There's one time where you could argue it either way, I think. For Peter, a Jew, he knows a lot about who the Lord God is. And the key thing to know about this Lord is that you can't be near him. He's good, he's gracious, he loves, but you can't be near him because he's blinding in holiness. See, back when the Ten Commandments were being given to Moses at Mount Sinai, they had to make a barrier around the entire mountain to stop anyone coming close to where God's presence was or they would die. When Israel was travelling around with a special ark where God had placed his presence, no one was allowed to touch it or go near it. Uh, There was one time where it was being transported on the back of a cart uh, and it hit a bump and the ark started to fall off and one guy just reached out to stop it from falling and he was instantly killed. You cannot be near God. It is clear. When God commanded Israel to make a temple, there had to be layers of rooms constructed so that God could be in their presence in one sense and yet have a barrier between him and the people because you cannot be near the holy living Lord God. There was one person who on one day a year could go into the room where God's presence was. The Lord is blinding and in holiness. You cannot be in his presence. That's who the Lord is. The all-powerful Lord of the universe. He's holy. You can't trifle with him. He's one whom you can't be near. And Peter recognises that Jesus is this Lord, the all-powerful Lord of the universe. So what does Peter say? What's the right response when you recognise who Jesus is? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He recognises his deep sin, his utter unworthiness, to be in the Lord's presence. I'm sure you know that one of the things you can't really say in our world is that people are bad or that anyone's desires, thoughts or actions are wrong if it's in line with who they are. But the Bible is very clear that who we are are people completely wracked with sin. To go nerdy for a second, this is a doctrine that's sometimes called total depravity. It's not that every single thought or action you have is as bad as it could possibly be, but that every part of us is tainted by sin all the time, every level of who we are, and that even the good things we occasionally do outwardly are tainted by sin, doing good because it makes me feel good or look good. We are completely wracked with sin, totally depraved. In fact, so much so that we can't even see the depths of our sin. We can't even see it clearly. You are more sinful than you know. When Jesus is in front of Peter, the the reality and depth of his sin come crashing down on him. And the holiness of the Lord comes into acute awareness for him. This is a key truth that God wants us to grasp. We've got a diagram here for you. Uh, Don't worry about reading the words. I couldn't get rid of them, but they're helpful if you can read them, but they don't matter. You've kind of got a straight line at the start, which which is us. And then the line starts to split. That is when God's word starts to show you the top line, which is the holiness of the Lord. 
And as you go along, he is more holy every time you come to him. And you realize he's more holy than you thought. And the bottom line is the depth of your sin. You are a deep sinner. And it shows that there is a wide gap between the two. God wants to explode your view of Jesus. He's the all-powerful Lord, blinding in holiness. And he wants to open your eyes to see what you're really like, that you are tainted by sin at every level. And God wants you to grow in these two convictions. So no matter where you fit on this diagram, your view of Jesus and your view of yourself is too small. God wants to keep convicting you that these lines are further apart than you know. Jesus is more holy than you can imagine. You are more sinful than you know. And the more you're in God's word, the more you'll see it. Maybe you're at that kind of horizontal line before the split. You've never really thought about or realized that the Lord is holy. And you've never realized that you are not. And that when you come face to face with God, which all of us one day will... Your sin and his holiness and the gaping chasm between means eternal death in his presence. That's a heavy thing to hear, but God wants you to hear it because God has made a way to deal with the gap between those two things. It gets hinted at later in the passage and we'll get there, but the key first step is to recognize and acknowledge this gap, that God is perfect pure and holy and that you are not and that you can't come before the holy God without facing certain death. It's like being sick where you can't accept the cure until you acknowledge you have the disease. That might not be you. You might be further along this kind of diagram and you realise how far apart these two realities are. For you, what God wants to do is make you more amazed by Jesus and his holiness, to grow in your awe of him. And he wants to make you more aware of the depth of your sin. It's not, it's not a static line where you kind of realise it once and that's it. God wants you to grow. And so are you? Are you growing in the depth of your understanding of these two realities? Or are you getting bored of hearing it? Or are you not really hearing it? at all we're so much more sinful than we know jesus is so much more holy and amazing than we think which makes what jesus does next even more surprising point two jesus came to catch catchers who know the cost peter has fallen down before jesus and he says depart from me you're the lord i'm a sinner And yet instead of instant death, like those who've come to the presence of the Lord before, Jesus says, verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Not only can you be in my presence, astonishing. I want you to be part of the most important thing that's happening in the universe. Remember back to chapter 4, Jesus, the most important person in the world, says that the most important task for him is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And here we see that start to get filled out in the most surprising way, that Jesus would call a sinner to be his instrument to catch other sinners. 
Peter, just how you caught a truckload of fish by listening to me, now you're going to catch a whole bunch of sinners for me. And it's not like fishing where when you catch the fish, they die. When you catch people for me, they'll live forever. It's incredible. Now, at one level, this is unique for Peter. This is like his calling. Isaiah, we saw one of the uh, big Old Testament prophet speakers called by God in a special way. This is a little bit like Peter's calling, his commissioning. He's the apostle through whom we receive the gospel. Part of what we're meant to see here is that when Peter speaks, he speaks on behalf of Jesus. And so we listen to him. And yet, as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we see this is also a call for us. If you're a Christian, God has called you. And he's called you for a purpose, to be part of the mission of his kingdom, the most important job that's going in the universe. What a privilege. You know how sometimes you give a kid like a job to do? Uh, You don't give a kid a job to do because it's actually going to help you in any way. If you give a kid a job to do, it's going to get done worse, slower, and give you more work to do at the end when you clean it up. But you give them the job because it kind of makes them feel good, like they're part of things. But they don't actually help you in any way. That is not what God does with us, which is crazy because a sinful human has less natural ability to help the God of the universe than a kid can help an adult. And yet God chooses to use us as his instruments in his mission to catch people so they can have life. The biggest thing that's happening in the universe, God uses us. It is incredible privilege. And when you think about it, it's completely crazy. There is no higher honour. And yet it's less crazy than being offered the privilege of doing the work of the Lord and then not to take him up on it. Isn't that crazy? To say, I don't have that much time to get involved in God's mission. I just haven't really got around to it. I don't think about it much. I'm a bit embarrassed by it. That is crazy. Do you know who you are? Do you know who the Lord Jesus is and what he's called you to? It's an incredible privilege and it is crazy to not take him up on it. It's crazy. But it's also a radical call. Did you see what it costs Peter and his friends to follow Jesus? Have a look at verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. At the height of their business and financial success, set up, they leave it behind. I take it they didn't sell their fish. Did they leave their families behind? I don't know. But to follow Jesus is a very high call. For Peter, it meant to literally leave his stuff behind and start walking after Jesus, to follow him. For us, it means to put everything on the table and to write a blank check with your life. My dreams, my desires, what I have, what I do, it's all up for grabs. It's all up to you, Jesus. Whatever you would have me do. It'll look different for each of us. But the heart of following Jesus is the same. Everything on the table to follow Jesus. Our view of discipleship is likely too small. 
But did you notice that there's something pretty significant that goes unexplained here? See, how do you go from, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinner, to come, be in my presence, be an integral part of my mission? Jesus kind of says, just do it. Isn't there this huge gap that we can't overcome? How is that possible? The next story gives us a hint. Point three, Jesus came to make unclean people clean. The next guy we meet is a man who we're told is full of leprosy. Now, leprosy is just a generic word that can mean a a whole bunch of skin diseases. I think there's like 76 diseases it can kind of include, something like that. It is a terrible disease. Not only is it a terrible disease on its own, it's terrible because in Jewish society, it means you're isolated from others, isolated from God. If you had leprosy, according to the Jewish law, you were considered ritually unclean. And anyone who came into contact with you would then become unclean as well, and so you had to stay away from them. And more than that, I don't know if you pick that up in our Bible reading, when you walked around, you had to walk around saying, unclean, unclean, so that people would have a warning, just so that no one would accidentally come near you and be in your presence. It's awful. Can you imagine that life? This uncleanness also meant you couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go anywhere near the place where God's presence was. Cut off from your people, cut off from your God. Now this guy has heard about Jesus and he just thinks, I've just got to get to him. Verse 12, he says to Jesus this, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice he says, make me clean, not heal me. He doesn't only want physical healing, he wants to be made clean. He wants to be able to go back into the presence of his people and be in the presence of his God. So what happens? Jesus does something unexpected. See, in the Old Testament law, unclean always wins. It's kind of like rock, paper, scissors, atomic bombs, like the one that always wins. If something clean comes into contact with something unclean, the clean always becomes unclean, not the other way around. But here, Jesus, the clean one, touches the unclean man and the unclean becomes clean. What does Jesus tell him to do? Verse 14. Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Go to the temple, have the priest verify what's happened so you can come into God's presence again. Can you imagine the joy this guy would have felt. This is a hint, this is a taste of what Jesus came to do on a larger scale. See, the bigger picture of the Bible is that sin, our sin, makes all of us unclean before God. What we've already seen is that God is pure, holy, clean, perfect. Our sin means that we can't come into God's presence and the space between our sin and God's holiness is far too big. But Jesus came to make unclean people clean. Here he makes one man with leprosy clean so he can come back into God's presence again. But Jesus is walking and he's on his way heading towards a time where he will deal with the uncleanness, the sin of the whole world. The good news of the gospel is that at the cross, Jesus deals with our sin that separates us from God He makes unclean people clean. 
so we can be in God's presence, so we can experience life with him forever if you put your trust in Jesus, if you trust and depend on the cross to deal with the gaping chasm between your sin and God's holiness, you can be in God's presence. God wants to grow a bigger and a better picture of the cross in you. Can you see how when we grasp more and more the depth of your sin and more and more the holiness of God, that that picture and awe of God's work at the cross, the gospel, grows bigger and bigger as well. God wants to grow you in your depth, in your love, in your joy for this truth, this picture of the gospel. And this picture is the motivation for the radical call of discipleship. Yes, Jesus is the Lord, the all-powerful one, and so it's right that he would demand for us to give up everything. And yet when you see the beauty of the cross, you willingly give up anything for the one who gave up everything for you. This passage wants to show us that we have too small a view of Jesus, of ourselves, of discipleship, and particularly of the gospel. Jesus is more amazing, more holy than we could ever imagine. We are more sinful than we'll ever know. Discipleship is more radical, more of a privilege than we'll ever admit. And our grasp of the gospel can never, ever be big enough. But it will grow as God convicts you in his word about these realities. And there is nothing better to look at than a growing awareness of how big and beautiful the gospel is for sinners like us. We're going to spend some time praying in response to this, and Archie is going to come and lead us in prayer for these things.